Hi, I'm Nicole Ferraro, an editor with Light Reading, and I am here with... Uh, JP Hemingway, I'm the Chief Strategy Officer for SES. Welcome, JP. It's nice to meet you. Likewise. Um, so we're here at Satellite 2023, very exciting. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you guys at SES are doing here this week. Well, the timing has been great this year for all the shows we're at because we've got our O3B and Power Constellation mm -hmm. coming to market in sort of Q3 of this year. Uh, so we've just launched two. Uh, we've got two more launches of two coming up. And there's an awful lot of work to go. It's not just the satellites in space, but it's all of the ground equipment, the partners we have on the ground, and the ground network plus space network equals greatness for our customers. So one of the reasons we're here at this event is a lot of our ecosystem partners are here and very active. Right, awesome. So um, just for anyone who might be unfamiliar with it, tell us a bit about why this satellite, why O3B matters. So, the O3B piece is actually just one component of what SES does. We're a multi-orbit company, which means we've got over 50 satellites in, let's call it, classic geostationary yeah. uh, domain, which is really, really good for some applications. Uh, a lot of the digital divide programs are well served by geo. But about uh, eight years ago, uh, SES was the very first company who brought into service a non-geostationary mm -hmm. NGSO constellation. We're in medium Earth orbit. Uh, the company that was acquired by SES was O3B, the other three billion, yeah. the unconnected uh, people. So that was a really nice addition. And I think SES disrupted itself by bringing this new startup in. And it's the only company that's been running geostationary and NEO in a hybrid manner for effectively eight years now. Yeah, wow. Okay, so perfect timing for you guys. Uh, it's nice that you have it in with the trades to show circuit to plan mm -hmm. around your uh, product announcements. So that, that worked out. Um, so let's talk a little bit about one of the big themes at the show, which is direct to device communications using LEO and satellite communications mm -hmm. to power IoT phones. Um, tell me a bit about your perspective on uh, just what's going on in the industry as far as all of this is concerned. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting space, first of all. IoT is something that we're actively involved in today. We tend to collect the, or connect to the collector nodes of IoT networks so rather than direct to devices. So that's something we're very active on. Wind farms, you know, large electrical companies. Yeah. But I think this next generation where they're looking to use effectively yeah, the SIM cards of, of you know, standard phones and standard IoT devices, it's a really interesting next step. Yeah. We're watching that space really carefully. We're not active in it today. But actually, I think the things that need to get sorted are the investment model, because the satellites that need to be launched are A, very large, because mm -hmm. they have to connect down to very small devices, yeah. and fairly significantly large in constellation size. There's a big, big investment. I think the recent announcements where some of the chip manufacturers have kind of got with the program effectively and announced their chips are supportable with the, the satellite is yeah. a big, big step. The final step, I think, is the business models because I don't think emergency SOS texts is what this is all about. Right. It has to be good voice and good data connectivity right. and how all of that business and technical ecosystem comes together. So I think it's really, really interesting. I think those things need to get matured a little bit, but we're sort of actively in, involved with all the, the interesting players there and well, we'll see how it goes. And so you're waiting for those parts of the market to mature before you guys maybe make an entrance into uh, Exactly, we'll see how it goes, but we're actively engaged with some of the key partners and we'll just, yeah, watch this space. And why do you think the conversation is so intense around this topic right now? I think it's back to, you know, everyone should have the same connectivity. And I've seen the great commercials that show, you know, someone stranded in the middle of the US, you know, Yosemite Park, whatever, and says, help, I'm yeah. stuck. 
that's really good. But yeah. I think what we really want to say is wherever you live in a black spot in the US or you know, somewhere in rural you know, Latin America, I think everybody wants, and governments really want now, yeah. uh, particularly post-COVID, they want to have everyone to have great connectivity for you know, getting help, but also receiving information. Right. So I think that's what's triggering it is people want to have you know, 4G and 5G-like services wherever you are. Right. And I think this is one more model to get there. Right, okay. So the D2D stuff is really a big focus here. Um, I focus a lot on the digital divide, so I've focused a lot on how uh, LEO uh, satellite and other satellites are delivering rural broadband and broadband to unserved areas of the world. Tell me a bit about how SES is doing that. Uh, give me some examples of where you guys are helping to close the digital divide. Yeah, so it's a big, big part of our business. And actually, if you ask any one of the employees at SES, they're telling us that they like being here because they're doing that. They're mm -hmm. connecting the unconnected. And it, we're a business, yeah. but you feel like you're making change, right? You're right. making change for the good. So we use both of our constellations. So Mio, if you want to think of it like as a virtual fiber, so it's more high throughput, and we tend to use that for projects that are maybe connecting cell towers or you know, large aggregations of Wi-Fi users that you need significant throughput. So think about wherever you would like to get fiber to, but the business case doesn't quite work for the villages or the towns that don't have it. This is a great way to get a virtual fiber connectivity in right. there. We've done some great projects over the years, actually in the Amazonas region in Brazil, where actually cities that had, in some cases, 50,000 people and they were sharing a satellite link that had literally a few megabits. Mm -hmm. Now, I've got 100 times more of that in my house, right. let alone reference. So we bought that virtual fiber concept, and what they then used is Wi-Fi or other technologies to get it around that particular city. So that's, that's one example. But the geo piece is also really, really good for the application. Yeah. So we just got awarded a contract with CFE, which is the Mexican government, to connect over 1,100 locations in rural Mexico. And the stat with there, I think, is only two-thirds of the homes in Mexico had broadband connectivity. That's a big piece of that. We did a project in uh, French Guiana, which is a little interesting backstory here yeah. because that's a place we all go to to launch a lot of satellites. Right. The uh, Karoo yeah. is, a, is the big space center there, and we always launch these things, but are we really doing anything for the actual communities around that country? And it's a beautiful country. So we just did a contract with Marlink, where they won an award through the French government again awesome. to effectively connect, I think it's over 7,500 locations to wow. great, great connectivity. So it's a nice story to say we used it yeah. as a space launch, but also it's a great place that we're actually providing great connectivity with our partners at Marlink. That is really cool. So you mentioned, you know, just now you mentioned a French subsidy for that particular program. Here in the U.S., as well as in the U.K., in Ireland, there's a big focus on spending money to get fiber everywhere. Right. As a satellite provider, are you concerned with that focus? Does that sort of shift how you guys are thinking about residential broadband going, you know, in the next 10 years as these countries try to future-proof with fiber? How mm -hmm. are you thinking about that focus? Look, Fiber is always going to be a mechanism to reach, reach people, but even in developed cities, mm -hmm. digging up the streets around this area we have is not very popular. So I think when you try and densify things like adding more and more 5G into even urban locations, the big thing about satellite now is it performs much more like fiber. When it used to be a very weak alternative, it would be used for the last, the last resort. Now it's actually fairly equivalent in performance. You can actually overlay fiber and, and high-performance satellite together in urban areas. But I think there's always going to be parts of the world that the more economical way to reach the most people effectively is going to be through satellite. Right. So I think fiber will keep reaching out. You see the maps in Africa and Latin America with the tendrils of fiber coming in. Yeah. But the heart of many of those locations are still almost entirely unconnected. Or in some cases, I've got a fiber. And if that fiber gets cut, you can't lose connectivity. So we had a great customer in actually um, Tonga uh, and, they, and, and in PNG actually, and they lost the submarine cable 
and they lost two thirds of the internet in PNG. And they're able to work with us to restore that within a week, right. not the months it takes to restore through a submarine cable. So I think there'll be a lot of complementarity between the two. Well, and that's, that's interesting you say it that way. I think that's true just generally speaking when it comes to technology and connectivity and also how they're speaking about D2D. They're talking mm -hmm. about needing LEO and 5G. And, you know, uh, so, but when it comes down to talking about government funding, these conversations can get a little hostile. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like fiber versus satellite. But I imagine you really do have to work together with fiber players in the industry. Um, I, is that part of your job? Do you yeah. collaborate with... Uh, fiber players, cable players? 100%. So we, we partner with the world's largest telcos. I think we've got eight out of 10 of right. the biggest names. And our job is to make satellite seamless. Right. What they don't want to do, what it used to be is the case, I've got 100 sites or 1,000 sites that by fiber. I've got 100 sites over here. I always say a joke about you open the cupboard and ask the satellite guys, can I ask for connectivity, please? Well, that's because it was hard, special, and different. Right. Now that we've trying to, we've made it all standardized, so we use all the same standards as all the telcos do, so MEF certification and all the same APIs that we expose. So if we can make our network feel like a very seamless off-net extension yeah. to our partners like Telstra and Orange and Verizon and others that we've done business with, then I think they will use it as more of a mainstream mechanism. So if we do that well, then I think they'll just say, well, what's the best way to reach our customers? Is it fiber, is it satellite, or something else? Right, okay. So one more question I want to ask you, also digital divide re related, is that uh, you know we've seen in the past year satellite connectivity connect war zones. We've mm -hmm. seen satellites come up in other disaster areas during other emergencies. How are you all thinking about that internally at SES? Have you had any deployments of that variety? And you know, it's sort of, complicated to ask this question, but with the war in Ukraine, we've seen how a personality and politics can get in the way of, you know, effectively delivering a crucial service. Right. How are you thinking about how we respond to true emergencies like that right. in a way that satellite is there right away and it's not getting caught up in weird political battles and there's, you know, a sort of like standard way that we're responding yep. uh, with this technology that can be instantly deployed. It's a great point, and there's three or four ways we tend to go about this. The first way is we work with our telco partners again, and a lot of our telcos, particularly in North America, have got these large trucks that they drive around after a hurricane, for example, right. and a very decimated area needs to have connectivity for people, but also the first responders. So we've developed these systems where it's effectively satellite communications on a truck yeah. that have been driven to the hurricane-affected area, and then they connect up, and the difference with us now, it's like having a fiber, right? That's the, the difference. The second is we did a project, for example, with Microsoft recently, where we actually worked with the Taiwanese fire department so that we actually had a pre-prepared solution that was actually a private 5G solution to connect to all the first responders there and then backhauled over fiber so they could deliver that private 5G bubble wherever they wanted to. That's there in case, and they know they're a country that could be exposed to some natural disasters, so that's this readiness piece. The final one is actually, we actually have a, because we're a part owned by the Luxembourg government, uh, and they've actually got a product that we work with them uh, through the Luxembourg government called emergency.lu, where we work with the Luxembourg government that can do a government to government kind of conversation that enables us to bring our solutions into the country. So it's not a commercial company banging on the door, it's actually a government to government prearranged or you know, at haste kind of conversation. And that helps a lot because it takes the politics out of it. It's a government lend lending help not a commercial company, so that's right. the difference. Okay, awesome. Well, I really enjoyed talking with you today, JP. Thank you so much, and good luck at the rest of the show. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you.